Well, it'd be great if you could have Isaiah chapter 40 open there in front of you. I don't know if we've got any C.S. Lewis lovers at church. Um, if you grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia, you might remember that scene in Prince Caspian where Lucy, who's been apart from Aslan for a while, she, she wakes up from her sleep, she, she sees Aslan, she runs to him, she tries to throw her arms around his mane and nestle her head in him. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan answers, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And you know, there's a, a truth there that really relates and resonates to our Christian experience. God doesn't change. But as we grow up in our faith, as we behold him for who he is, he grows bigger and bigger and bigger. If you were here uh, last Sunday morning, we were looking at one of the most loved chapters of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. And it was so that we could get encouragement as we enter into this new year. Well, in this, the second Sunday of this new year, I want us to look together uh, just as a one-off arguably the most loved chapter of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. If Romans chapter 8 verse 28 was full of profound and precious truth to encourage us as we enter into a new year, then so too is Isaiah chapter 40. It's jam-packed full of wonderful truth that will inspire us and encourage us to live for God in this year. If you look at your order of service, you'll see that the title of this morning's service is Behold Your God. Those three words straight out of verse 9. Behold Your God. Isaiah's central aim, speaking on God's behalf, is that we, the people of God, would behold God in all of His glory and greatness. Now, let me just, uh, before we dive into the wonderful contents of this chapter, step back and And remind us of this great book of Isaiah. Just like the Bible is made up of 66 books, Isaiah is made up of 66 chapters. The Old Testament has 39 books. Isaiah's first half is made up of 39 chapters. And in the first half of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, speaking on God's behalf, comes in large measure with a message of judgment. Now, it is peppered in various places with good news of the coming Messiah, but for the most part, Isaiah brings the bad news. God's people have sinned against God. They're not trusting in God, but they're persisting in idolatry and in rebellion. It climaxes in chapter 39 with God speaking through Isaiah to King Hezekiah saying, I will raise up the Babylonians in the east, and they're going to come, and they're going to invade. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to loot the temple, ransack the treasury, and they are going to lead you, God's people, off into exiles, exile as slaves. I mean, that's what came to pass. That's the story of Daniel. Well, then you get to Isaiah chapter 40 through chapter 66. And in this second half, it is is made up of Isaiah bringing a message 
not of bad news, but of good news, of the comfort and the hope that God wants his people to know. Now, one of the things we need to appreciate about Isaiah's message in the second half of the book is that it was not originally intended for his own contemporaries. The message of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 was intended for the generation that would live in exile. It was written for a generation yet unborn. And the message that God had for his people in exile was one of immense comfort and encouragement. And my prayer is as we walk through these first 11 verses this morning and then come back this evening to walk through the remaining verses of this chapter, that we will be comforted and encouraged by God's word for his people. And if you just look down at verse 1, you'll see how it opens there. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It opens with this resounding note of comfort. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word comfort? Perhaps fabric softener. Perhaps a hot chocolate by the fireside. Perhaps your bed. You know, in the 21st century, we place a a premium on comfort. We all want to live comfortably. That is, without lack. We, we, we don't want to be stressed. We, we want to have our lives all together. In the original here, that, the word comfort that's been used actually is the, the sense of God breathing new life. God giving strength to his people. Come fort. Come and strengthen And it's repeated. And it's repeated because in Hebrew, when something is repeated, it's for emphasis. Here's the intensity. Here's the urgent message that God's people in exile need to hear. God wants to breathe new life. He wants to give them a glorious future. He wants to strengthen them. He has a purpose and a plan for them. Now, we need to hear this as the people in exile would have heard this. They were in exile because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. God, through Isaiah and the many prophets before him, had warned his people, if you continue walking in your own way, I will send you into exile. And God's people didn't listen. And so they ended up being carried away into exile, far from the presence of God, far from home, here God comes to them and he says to the generation in exile, in effect, I am not finished with you. I have a plan and a purpose for you and it is to restore you and it is to breathe new life into you. And what a timely reminder that must have been for them. God's not finished with us. After our rebellion and our rejection, our unfaithfulness. You know, um, those of us who are Christians, we, we know what it's like, don't we? Because we sin constantly. We're just like the people of old. And there are times where we can find ourselves sinning so often, we can think, God, are you finished with me? You know, I've messed up again and again. I've blown it. 
Well, here God's message to his people is, I am not finished with you. I want to give you new life. I want to restore you. In fact, just look at that first verse again. Do you notice anything striking about it? Comfort, comfort, my people says you're God. God's using covenant language. God's relationship to his people in Scripture is based on the covenant promise. It's repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. I will always be your God and you will always be my people. God's people have been faithless. They've wandered from him. They've rebelled against him. But God wanted them to know this. He would never never forsake them. He promised to be faithful to them. And he is a God of covenant faithfulness, of covenant love, steadfast and unfailing. You know, at the beginning of a new year, it's so easy, isn't it, to get introspective, to look at our lives, to see the areas where we we don't really measure up. Temptation is we look at ourselves, but we don't look to God or his word. And God's word says, I promise to be faithful to you who know me and love me. Now, as we move from verse 1, which really sets the tone for this chapter, Isaiah, through God, speaks about four aspects of the comfort that God wants his people to know. And we're just going to walk through these four aspects. The first aspect of God's comfort that he wants his people living in exile to know is that their exile is coming to an end. Their sins will be pardoned. If you were here on Christmas Day or if you listened to Dick's sermon on Isaiah chapter 9 after the event, you might remember that he mentioned in his sermon something called the prophetic past tense. It's when a prophet speaks of a future event as though it's already happened in the past. Now, that's exactly the device that Isaiah employs here again in Isaiah 40. He speaks of the fact that the warfare has ended, that their sins, their iniquity has been pardoned. Now, just as we behold our God saying this to his people, I want you to notice how verse 2 opens. This is something that's so stunning about our God. He can change the tone of his voice to his people. The first 39 chapters, God's been speaking quite frankly, formally, pointedly to his people, a message of judgment. And now he says to Isaiah, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to my people. And actually, that phrase, speak tenderly, it literally has at its heart, speak to the heart of my people. Speak affectionately into their lives. This is what I want them to know deep down in their souls. The exile is over. Her sin pardoned. Now, at this point, when they received this message, we, we don't know how far on in exile. We, we know God's people were living in Babylon for 70 years. But God's saying to them as if it's happened so that they can have confidence that it will happen. 
That's what the prophetic past tense. God says what he means. He means what he says. If he says it's going to come to pass, it will come to pass. Now, in the Old Testament, exile is always a picture of what our sin does to us. It separates us from God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden sin against God. And they're exiled from the presence of God. The people of Israel are told again and again, don't sin against God. Don't continue in your unfaithfulness. They do. They're exiled from God's presence. But what we need to understand is that for the people of God who are exiled in Babylon, this was part of God's loving purposes for them. He disciplined them because he loved them. Because he just planned to restore them. And here he tells them that will come to pass. And and remember, the reason they were in exile was because of their sin. And God addresses the root problem of the people. He says, listen, all of the sins that Isaiah's been reminding the people that they've, they've committed, he says, they're pardoned. Now, we know from a forthcoming chapter, chapter 53, how their sin will be pardoned through the servant of the Lord. The Lord will lay on Jesus the iniquity of all of his people. He'll be pierced for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. Now, you see just there at the end of verse 2, there's, there's a phrase, and some people misunderstand it and read it wrong, and it's so easy because in English it comes across like this. It says that she's received from the Lord's heart double for her sins. You know, it'd be easy to read that and think that God's saying that he'll give his people twice as much punishment because of their sins, but listen, that would not be just of God, would it? To punish people twice as much for the God. And God is not unjust. So what's been meant here? Well, that phrase, double for her sins, refers to the fact that God's people will receive the exact match for her sin and guilt. And what is the exact match? Here's, here's the staggering, stunning truth of the pardon. The exact match is the sinless Son of God coming to take away their sin. And, and truly, what a word of comfort this is. The people of God will no longer experience exile from the presence of God because the Son of God will come. He will be forsaken so that the people of God can be forgiven. Now, you can well imagine God's people hearing this glorious message of comfort, thinking, how is this possible? Well, look at the second word of comfort. We read that the Lord comes to his people. Read verses 3 through 5 with me. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I don't know what you do, but when I know someone's coming to visit the house, I tend to do is try and get the house ready, try and tidy up the mess. And if someone of particular note's coming to visit, you know, I go all out, get the china out. Well, in the ancient world, when a king was coming on a visit to a city, he would send forerunners ahead of him to make the way straight and smooth for him. 
And it's not actually just something that happened in the ancient world. It's still something that happens in our 21st century modern world. So a few years back, I, I was minister in Cumbernauld. And you'll never believe this. The queen, the late, our late queen, came to visit Cumbernauld, <laughs> um, which has been twice voted the ugliest town in Britain. But the local authority, they just relished this opportunity. And, and Cumbernauld's got so many roads, and they're just <laughs> covered with potholes. Every road that had a pothole on it was filled. The train station into which she arrived, right? I'd never seen anything like it before. Hanging baskets. All the fences were painted beautifully. It was incredible. The school that she'd come to open, it was gleaming. I'd never seen anything like it. And they quite literally rolled out the red carpet at the train station and then at the school. All the traffic was cordoned off so that her way to the school from the station would be smooth. Well, here we read about God and his coming. And it's an an even bigger scale. Every valley lifted up, every mountain, hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places, a plain. And what's been communicated here in this imagery is that God will move heaven and earth to come to his people in order to be with us, to rescue us, and to reveal himself to us. When the the queen came to Cumbernauld, it was just to greet and meet a few people, open a school. God comes to his people, and it's to be with us. Isaiah chapter 7, his name shall be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But he's not just coming to be with us. As I said a few moments ago, he's coming not in judgment, but in salvation. The the stunning thing about our God is he comes to take upon himself the judgment his people's sins deserve on himself. And then he adds in verse 5, and the glory of the the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's coming is to reveal himself. And how does God reveal himself? He reveals himself in his son. Second person of the Trinity. If you want to see the glory of God, you see it in the face of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The apostle John, speaking of the incarnation, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is striking, right? God's people. The reason they're in exile is because they'd wandered from God. They they put their trust in other kings and kingdoms to help them and rescue them in previous years. They they were always committing idolatry, and God says, I'm going to come, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to reveal myself to you. You are going to behold my glory. Now, Here's what is fascinating. This message was for the people in exile, and we know they didn't get to see the glory of God. Could I ask a favor? Does anyone have a tissue? <laughs> My nose is running. Um, thanks, Dick. The, the people have seen, the people who are given this message would never see the glory of God in the same way that those who lived hundreds, thank you so much, in the same way that those who lived hundreds of years after them would in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know, the, the, the striking thing for you and I is that we live on this side of the cross. We get to read the pages of Scripture, and we get to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. How much more comfort is this to us? You want to see God for who he is? Open your word and see it in Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 5, he says this, all flesh shall see it together. When will all flesh see the glory of God? Not in his first coming, but in his second coming. See, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here, here, here really is a sobering fact. When he comes again, he comes both in salvation and judgment. And those who are outside of Christ, they will be exiled from God's presence forevermore. But those who are in Christ, he comes to save them, to take them with him into his new creation, to dwell with them forever. And we can be sure of this because it adds, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And And that leads us to our third aspect of comfort. The Lord always keeps his word. Look at what it says beginning in verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows in it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's five ends with the the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah now, through God, is given this message to persuade the people that we can trust in God's Word. We can trust completely, totally, utterly in God's Word. Do you know why? Because God is nothing like us. We're like the the grass. We're here one day, we're gone the next. We're like the flowers in the field. We've got a beauty and a glory, but it's fleeting. Here one day, gone the next. But God, he's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's glorious. He remains. We're fickle and fragile. He remains the same, constant. We're transitory. He's permanent. His word is permanent. His word stands firm in all generations. In fact, God had made the promise to be for his people to Abraham. Passed it down through Jacob and Isaac and, to Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth. And God still remains true to that promise today. You know, um, the people who were living in exile if we were to put ourselves in their sandals for a moment, they must have thought the superpower of the earth at that time was Babylon. They're in control. They're in charge. This is the thing we know. Empires rise and empires fall. Empires come and go. Babylon had its moment. Rome had its moment. But they come and go. But here's what remains the same through it all. The word of our God. See when it says we'll stand forever. It's a really powerful picture. Like grass rises up, flowers rise up and stand. God's word 
stands unshakable, unmovable, forever. And that means as God's people, we can firmly place our feet on God's word as the foundation of our life. His promises he will make good on. He'll never change his mind. If you are his, you are his forevermore. I will pardon you. I'll come to you. I'll reveal myself to you. And you can trust my word. And then the fourth and final way that God brings comfort, and this in many ways just sets up what we'll look at this evening, but verses 9 through 11, God, through the prophet Isaiah, climaxes his message. He says, go up, up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. You know, they've received all this message of comfort. God is a God who's going to end their exile. God is a God who's going to take their judgment. God is a God who's going to come to them, rescue them, reveal himself to them. God is a God whose word is sure for them. And here's the message. What's the people of God's response to this? Go. Go to the highest mountain and tell everyone, Behold, your God. Don't just tell them, raise up, lift up your voice, shout it, declare it. This is wonderful news. This is for everyone. This is news worth shouting about. God promises to give his people new life, a glorious future. God promises to come to his people, reveal his glory so that we can live with him forever in the glory of his presence. Now, when he says, behold your God, it's really interesting that the primary audience is the cities of Judah, which is another way of saying, tell this message to the people of God. In one sense, this isn't a a message of go evangelize the world. In, in In a real sense, it's a message of go evangelize the people of God with the message that they need to behold their God. Do you know who needs evangelized this morning? Me. You, who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we so often forget who God is. We so often spend so much time looking at ourselves, looking at the brokenness of our world, and Isaiah says, no, 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 you need to lift up your eyes. You need to look at God. You need to hear the good news of who God is. What better way to begin a new year than for us as the people of God to remind one another who God is? Now, do you know what's so good about our God? Is he's the sovereign savior. Look at verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. This is a picture of a conquering king. He comes with strength and might and power. Now, I I don't want you to miss this. This message has been given to people who have been wayward and wicked and rebellious. God's saying, my strength is so strong that your sin doesn't compare. You've never wandered beyond God's reach. You're never beyond God's grasp. God's strength as the sovereign savior of the world 
Yes, our sins may be many, but his mercy is way more. Notice just how glorious his, his power is. He says, behold, his reward is with him. Do you know what the reward that comes with God is? His people. Jesus. The reward of Jesus is his people. His treasured possession. His glorious inheritance. He's our inheritance. We're his inheritance. And that means that with a sovereign Savior, if you trust in him, if you believe in him and what he's done and taking the judgment that we deserve, we're safe with him. We're promised this glorious future with him. But, but it's quite one thing to, to, to showcase God as the sovereign Savior. But the final thing that Isaiah wants to draw our eyes' attention to is our God is also a tender shepherd. Look at what he says next. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Like nothing compares to this picture of God here, of, of Christ, the, 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 the tender shepherd. Look at the special care. The same arm that rules is the same arm that gathers, that, that, that brings his lambs, his sheep, close to them. The same arm that rules is the same arm that carries his sheep close to his chest. If you trust in Christ, you are safe in his arms. When this world's a mess, when, we're, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where evil's always coming after us, God's arm is what protects us and keeps us. It's a beautiful picture because even the most vulnerable of us, the most fragile of us, the picture here is of the powerful one being gentle with us. And what comfort this ought to bring to us as we begin a new year. He who holds you and he who holds the future promises to be gentle and caring. Truly, there's no good news that compares with us. He's, he's forgiving. He's loving. He's committed. And so, so, so what's the call of this passage to do? It's to behold your God. It is to see him for who he is and to see him for what he's done. Are you bigger, God, in our estimation? No, I'm not. But as you grow... Year on year, he becomes bigger in our vision. Let's, let's pray. God, we, we do confess that so often we look at ourselves more than we look to you. We confess that so often we fail to see you in all your greatness and glory, both your power and both your gentle, tender care and commitment to your people. God, we also confess that so often we, we, we fail to, to realize the power and the strength of your word. All that you say, you mean. All that you mean, you say. We can take your promises and know that you will keep them to the end. 
We began this service singing that we will trust in you and you alone because your goodness and your mercy, they follow us all the days of our life. God, as we begin this new year together, we do pray that we would trust that your goodness and your mercy will follow us into this year. That you will lead us and you'll guide us. That you will cause us to lie down and rest. That you will restore our soul. That you will lead us back onto the paths of righteousness. Lord, we confess that sometimes we're, we're given over to, to sin. We, we fail you. We're so faithless towards you. But we thank you for this good news. That your mercy is greater, stronger, and more than our sins. And we pray that our response to this good news of who you are and all that you've done would be to go and to tell one another as your people and then to tell our city and to tell the whole world of who you are and what you've done so that others can come and rejoice and boast and glory in you forevermore. We pray this in your powerful and precious name. Amen.